Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm your host. Uh, I am a patient advocate because about five years ago now, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And so I've had an upfront look at America's medical system. And uh, I and my expert panelists are here to answer your health care and health insurance questions. And let's get started with our first question from Norma Jean, who wants to know, uh, when is somebody going to check in on long-term care insurance? I've paid into it for 22 years, and I just tried to get it because I have two chronic illnesses, but they would not allow me in home care. I was disqualified after jumping through many hoops for several months. Uh, and to answer that, uh, welcome Diane Archer from Just Care and Social Security Works. Thank you, Laura. And great question, Norma. We haven't touched on long-term care insurance, and we should have because long-term care, as we all know, is critical to so many older adults. I think it's seven in 10 will need long-term care at some point um, in our lives. The issue is that long-term care insurance has increasingly become prohibitively expensive and not comprehensive in what it covers. And so fewer people are buying it and for good reason. Uh, so let me just go through some of the issues. Um, every long-term care insurance policy is different and many, if not most of them today are probably not worth buying because their caps, the amount that they'll pay for coverage and when they'll pay for coverage are so low. So that's why I'm not really surprised to hear that your insurer is not covering your in-home care. Also, qualifying for coverage is often really diff difficult. Um, in many instances, you need to have um, to be unable to um, to do uh, three out of five activities of daily living, like bathing and toileting and dressing and eating or moving from a bed to a chair. So if you, Norma, only need help with bathing, for example, you wouldn't qualify. Other big concerns with long-term care insurance include the premiums that they charge. Often those premiums look really good when you're first buying the coverage and you're told that the premiums are level, but level doesn't mean that they stay the same. I don't even know if it has any real meaning other than to mislead because premiums can go up and up and tons of people end up paying in for long-term care insurance and then losing um, their coverage because they can no longer afford the premium before they even can use the coverage. In addition, I mean, a lot of these policies have inflation protection, but it's at most 5%. And sometimes the cost of care is going up way more than 5%. So the coverage you buy today may not even be adequate to meet even a small portion of your needs later on. So for these and other reasons, we advise that people really think carefully before buying long-term care insurance and maybe set aside some money to use for long-term care if possible down the road. Um, that's not, I know, terribly helpful to you in this instance. So for you, Norma, I would recommend that you um, call your New York, uh, not your New York, your state health insurance assistance program to see if they might help you look at your policy and see what you really are entitled to and see what it will take for you to get coverage. You might also talk to your doctor about what 
you would need to qualify for your coverage for long-term care because maybe you're at the cusp of eligibility and just not quite there. And over time, you will get them. Thank you, Diane. And our next question is for Zoid uh, from Health Sherpa. Uh, tell us about the deadlines for uh, open enrollment for health insurance. If you don't have health insurance right now, uh, what should you be doing, Zoid? Yeah, so there are a few things. Um, if you don't have health insurance right now, you may still be eligible to enroll through the marketplace. Um, we're currently in the special enrollment period, which means that you do need to have a qualifying life event in order to enroll. So. Um, you can look these up on healthcare.gov, um, but there are such things as losing your insurance through your job, um, moving to a different state so you no longer applies location. Um, and then there's also a special, special enrollment period for folks who earn below 150% of the federal poverty line. Um, and you can look up those numbers online as well, um, or just check to check for your eligibility on healthcare.gov or on our website on healthsherpa.com. Um, and that is a monthly special enrollment period. So if you fall in that income level, um, you may qualify. Um, otherwise, if you don't qualify for the special enrollment period, open enrollment will start um, in November, November 1st. And it is not, I don't think it's confirmed yet, um, but we believe it is going to run until January 15th, just like it did last year. Um, though last year, you should know that in order to get a start date of January 1st, you still needed to enroll by December 15th. And so that um, is that is what we would expect for this year as well. Um, but if you, um, sorry, if you um, don't get in by that December 15th deadline, um, as long as you enroll by January 15th, you would get a February 1st start date. Again, this is kind of speculation. We haven't gotten the uh, official confirmation yet, but that is what we are expecting. Great. And our next question is from Caroline, who is turning 65 next April. Right now, I collect SSDI. I got a notice in the mail about choosing my Social Security. Do I need to do anything or will my benefits continue as they are? Uh, Diane. Great question. So I did check this out and it appears that your benefits should continue just as they are. You will transition from receiving social security disability income to receiving social security retirement benefits and your benefits shouldn't change. You should get exactly the same amount as you've been getting. So that's the good news. Um, I do still think that it's wise always to contact social security to confirm everything, to make sure they are going to do it the way it needs to be done, and also to make sure that you are signing up for Medicare. Uh, you should sign up for Medicare Part B. You'll get Medicare Part A automatically uh, in the three months before you turn 65 so that the met your Medicare inpatient and outpatient care will be covered in full by Medicare um, as of uh, your birthday month. And so two reasons to call Social Security, confirm that you're getting that transition from Social Security disability income to Social Security retirement benefits, and to make sure that Social Security is signing you up for Medicare effective on the first day of the month that you turn 60. Great. And our next question, Zoid, uh, I hear that uh, Affordable Care Act health insurance policy costs may be going up quite a bit 
for next year. Can you tell us what's going on and what Congress is doing about it? Yeah, for those who might need a refresher, um, when the American Rescue Plan Act was passed in early 2021, one of the uh, many things it did was it increased subsidies for most income levels um, for Affordable Care Act plans. Um, And it also got rid of that subsidy cliff. So previously, if you earned more than 400% of the federal poverty level, you were not um, eligible for any sort of subsidies. Um, But with this, it capped um, your, what you would be expected to spend on your health insurance plan per month on the premium at 8.5% of your household income. if you earned over 400% of the federal poverty line. However, the American Rescue Plan Act only set these subsidies to continue for two years. So they would expire at the end of this year. They would not apply for plans for plan year 2023. Um, There is some talk that there is a bill going through Congress um, that could extend these subsidies. Um, Congress tried previously in the year with Build Back Better Um, And that did not pass. Um, So we are hopeful with this bill that it will pass. It's kind of a pared down version of Build Back Better. Um, It would extend the subsidies for another couple years. Um, And if that does not pass, unfortunately, there's a couple things that will happen. Subsidies will go back to where they were before. So um, everyone would get lower subsidies, which means higher premiums. Um, That subsidy cliff would come back. Um, And more more likely than not, we're, you know, it's again, it's speculation, but based on what we're seeing, um, insurance companies will be raising prices overall in order to account for fewer people enrolling, um, which would mean that even if you don't get a subsidy, you would still end up having to pay more per month. So it would really um, negatively impact everyone um, from what we can tell. So we are hopeful that that will pass. If it doesn't pass before August recess, there is still some hope, um, It, you know, that something could get passed later in the year, um, but it wouldn't really impact this open enrollment period. There probably having to be some sort of special enrollment period like there was after American Rescue Plan Act in order for everyone to take advantage of it. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, from what I'm hearing, Congress wants to do something in the next few weeks before August recess. Uh, But the drop dead deadline for passing a budget reconciliation bill is the budget deadline, which is September 30th. So even if it doesn't happen in the next couple of weeks, for whatever reason, they will have a little bit of time when they come back after August break in September to get it done. But that's really cutting it close because uh, notices about your insurance premiums for next year will probably go out in October, if not sooner. Our next question is from Jim Smith, who wants to know, why do we need or why do we have for-profit insurance companies involved in healthcare? As a 74-year-old senior on Medicare, I'd like to know the rationale for the automatic payment of $126 that's taken out of my SSR every month. Uh, Diane. Okay, so privatization in the healthcare system, at least in Medicare, is um, the result of a very successful lobbying effort uh, persuading Congress, both Republicans and more importantly, Democrats, that private insurers could do um, a better job of delivering coverage to people with Medicare. Um, 
better quality care, they claimed, at lower cost. At that point, it was 10% less than traditional Medicare. What's turned out, as I believe you probably know, is quite the opposite. What we know for a fact is that the private insurers have cost the government and taxpayers about uh, at least 4% more um, overall, which is billions and billions of dollars, um, every year since their inception. And there's been lots of gaming, uh, upcoding, and overbilling the government by literally hundreds of billions of dollars more. So it has not been at all money saving. And from a quality perspective, what we continue to hear from government agencies that oversee Medicare is that these private insurers, these corporate health insurers, have failed to provide them with complete and accurate information to even assess the quality of care they deliver. So what we say is no data, no value. They're not offering value. They're not offering quality. They're not offering money saving uh, you know, advantages over traditional Medicare. But politically, these insurers are incredibly influential. And as a result, uh, there are very few members of Congress who are willing to take them on and to challenge um, the fact that they are really taking money from Medicare that we need in the Medicare trust fund to be spent on people's health care, to expand Medicare, to cover vision, hearing, dental on long-term care, which is what we desperately need. Um, what it's going to take to get them out, or at the very least, to stop overpaying them is a big question. We fight and advocate for changes in the Medicare Advantage program as often as we can with as many members of Congress as we can. And we would urge you and all of our viewers to please contact your members of Congress and at the very least say that we shouldn't be wasting precious dollars, precious Medicare dollars on overpaying the private insurers that offer Medicare. Thank you, Diane. And for everybody listening, please keep calling and texting in your questions and we will answer them in future episodes. So please, uh, we want to hear from you and we want to get you help. And now I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, Dr. Amy McCurdy-Keats, who practices in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia and will be talking about patient safety and advocacy from a physician's perspective. So welcome, Dr. Amy. Hey, hi, Laura. Nice to thank you for having me. Great. So my first question is, what should uterus-having persons know about making sure they're insured? So uh, I, I liked what you all were talking about with access to healthcare through healthcare.gov. Most Americans get their insurance through their job since the onset of the Affordable Care Act, though so you can enroll through the, the public option. The one thing that I would tell for all, uh, all your viewers who have a uterus is uh, contraception is very important and it's now protected. So if, if you have insurance, even if it doesn't cover a lot of services, uh, let's say for instance, you have a high deductible contraception, uh, sterilization, those services are still typically covered at 100%. Great. And I, I remember uh, back before the ACA having insurance that did not cover contraception. And so uh, it being an essential health benefit is uh, helpful for millions of people out there. Yes, it's been, it's been a great gain. We used to have to uh, jump through all sorts of hoops to get 
uh, a birth control pill covered or uh, progesterone releasing IUD, those can off bleeding. We, we used to have to jump through hoops. Now, if, if the person or the patient needs contraception, it's typically covered a big gain with the Affordable Care Act. And what care should people be sure to receive every year? And how can they make sure that's covered by their medical provider? So I'm a specialist in OBGYN, so I'm dealing uh, primarily with, with women. Um, our, our recommendation for things like cervical cancer sc- screening for infections, and then as women get older, um, screening for breast cancer, uh, and then other general health screens. Some of those are blood work. A lot of the screening tests that you would get, especially as you get older, are also covered by the Affordable Care Act protection. So for example, a screening colonoscopy for an older adult, that should be covered 100% as long as it's screened. And in these troubling times for reproductive health in particular, what are some other things that people might need to consider with their providers and insurance? Gosh, it's... Uh... For, for female patients, what I emphasize is just be sure that you have access to. We're, we're hearing a lot of fear that the right to sterilization will be taken away. I don't specifically see that, but I, I do think that that's fear. And fear can sometimes drive people to do things. So access to contraception, thoughts about long-term, what, what your values are. And Diane has a question for you. Yeah, I, w- I wondered about Plan B, which is, as I understand it, contraception post-conception. That's a great question. So Plan B gets, unfortunately, gets confused with uh, the abortion pill. Plan B is not the abortion pill. It's a basically a birth control pill that you take within about three days of unprotected, and that can prevent. I really like to talk to patients about that because... The, the abortion pill is a different, that's a different process. And that's mm-hmm. something that happens after pregnancy. Plan B can actually prevent conception. And so that, that's a wonderful option uh, for people that, that become unexpectedly in a situation. Probably the most common is, you know, someone's using a barrier protection like a condom, the condom. Plan B is available over the counter uh, in the farm. And is that also covered in full? So plan B, the coverage can vary. What I tell patients is check with your insurance. In most cases, I find most patients in the U.S. are, are paying out of pocket. And Dr. Amy, uh, what, what should you be looking for when you're trying to find a good doctor? And, and what should you do if you feel like your doctor's not listening to you, not paying attention, or if, if you feel like you're not getting the care that you, you, you deserve? So one of, one of the things coronavirus has done is allowed you to access care by telemed now. So what, what I encourage my patients is find someone that you can work with preferentially in your area. But for a lot of the mental health needs, I think telemedicine is a good option. I think when a patient finds a provider that's not connecting with them, it's probably time to just move on to someone else. Uh, I like to say there's a doctor for every patient. I probably should modernize that to there's a provider for every patient because a lot of healthcare um, today is provided by advanced practice, nurse practitioners, Um, advanced practice physician assistants. And I I definitely think that if you need access to primary care um, or other services, if if you don't find the right person, move on. And what's there's all kinds of different providers. There's doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and physician's assistants and all these different names. What's what's the difference? And uh, what should you be looking for? So 
I think ideally we'd all like to have a physician for all of our needs. The, the big issue with physicians is there's fewer of them as uh, our baby boomer generation starts to retire. So physicians take a long time to train. They have the option to do surgical procedures, but a lot of physicians don't do procedures. So, so what I would view, a physician is needed if, if you need a surgical procedure or if you have something very serious like cancer or critical care. I think there's a lot of access points even into those specialties with nurse practitioners and physicians. The nurse practitioners and physician assistants typically specialize in one area and many times work as a part of a team which would include a physician who may oversee multiple advanced practices. Yeah, and when my oncologist was out on maternity leave, I saw the nurse practitioner in her practice. And a lot of nurse practitioners are in, in Virginia, we've passed laws, they're in independent practice. That doesn't mean they don't work with physicians. It means that they can practice independently. They typically are part of a healthcare team, whether it's in a different practice or in the same building like probably with your oncologist, they probably work in a collaborative practice. And with with all the uh, attacks going on right now on reproductive health, uh, how comfortable should a patient be in talking to their doctor uh, if they live in a state, especially where uh, care may be criminalized? Uh, should sh- should patients tell their doctors everything or should they be careful not to put themselves or their doctor in a legal liability? You know, I practice in a state that is not not criminalizing talk about abortion at this time. Uh, I practice in Virginia. So I would say it's very state dependent. Um, If you live in a state like Texas where criminalization of providers and possibly patients is an issue, I would be cautious with what you say. I think if you're in a state that doesn't have that problem, I think that you need to be open and honest with your healthcare provider. I think it's important. Um, people need to know if you're dealing with something that, that involves abortion. It's, it's an important part of health. And Diane has a question. So I have a slightly unrelated question that's surfaced a few times lately, which is in this new telehealth world, I'm finding that folks are calling their doctors just with a quick question, you know, do I need Paxlovid, I have COVID, or whatever it might be, and then getting charged hundreds of dollars, something that never used to happen. Is that something you're aware of that's happening down in Virginia, or any any, any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, so I, I would definitely say that billing for telemed services is allowed, and patients should be aware of that. When you reach out to your physician by telephone or if you arrange a video call, it is very possible they're billing an office. Now, is it widespread? I think most physicians and advanced practice providers aren't aren't that sophisticated. And so if, you know, if you're talking with your doc uh, in a small practice on the weekend, you may not get a bill for that. If you're connecting through your primary care provider who works for CVS Minute Clinic, it is possible that they're... And I guess they don't have to warn you about this. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, when when we schedule people for telemed, we probably don't treat it any differently than anything else. So 
from the patient perspective, I would say if, if you have an appointment and you're being scheduled, I would assume they're charged. If, if it's a phone call that you didn't pre-schedule, I think that's different. I think that as a patient, it would be reasonable to say, hey, I didn't know that phone call on Saturday night. Generate. Thanks. And I, I email my doctors uh, occasionally. You know, I, I wanted to know whether I should get another um, uh, COVID-19 booster before doing some traveling uh, coming up. And so uh, she, she replied uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and I have never been billed for that, but it's a good thing to know that I maybe could be billed for emails with my doctor. I've, I've not heard of physicians or advanced practice providers billing, but but definitely for phone calls, telemeds. If you have a face-to-face -face with the I would expect that they're treated. Okay, so if it's not urgent, it might be better to email your provider as opposed to trying to schedule telemed. Uh, and what do you think about um, going to a CVS uh, Minute Clinic or urgent care or whatever versus seeing your doctor? Like, what? where's the line when you should wait and see your doctor versus just go go to a clinic uh, just to walk? It's a great question. And I, I may be an outlier compared to most uh, American physicians. But you know, if you're if you're traveling, and you have access to, to an urgent care, that is not your provider, I, I think it's better that you get care than you wait till you. if you're at home, and you're able to wait to see your doctor, I think that's always ideal if you have a physician or advanced practice provider that's and if you don't have a doctor uh if you don't if you don't have uh your primary care physician how do you how do you find one you know we we have trouble where we live we have a lot of primary care off a very long what i recommend especially because a lot of my patients are, are health i encourage them to get established with a primary care office so that when you do need them like if you become sick or you end up get established so that you're already established. That way, when you call for your hospital follow-up. It's a really so important point. I, I just want to chime in here because I, I think there are a lot of people, especially younger people who don't have primary care docs, and then they break their leg. Right. And without that primary care doc to refer you to a specialist, it's much, much harder to get that special. And I, I really think the primary care offices are just overwhelmed. They're yeah. busy. A lot of uh, a lot of practices have seen a lot of change. In healthcare, everyone's changing jobs like the entire world is. And so, so getting established sometimes means you're established with an office. It is very possible your provider may leave, but if they have your chart and you can reach out to them, I think that's always ideal. E even if it means that you're seeing a nurse practitioner and you don't have contact with the physician. Primary care in and of itself can help coordinate some of the problems that will, will come up over the course of And sometimes when I've signed up for health insurance, I have been assigned a primary care physician. Like it'll say that on your insurance card. If, if you've just moved to a new location and you've just signed up for health insurance, they may assign you to somebody, which I guess means that person is taking new patients. It should be. You know, interestingly, I've had We've seen patients where they get assigned a primary care doc uh, or provider, but they have trouble getting appointments. So I would always check that if you go to a new location and get one assigned, I would reach out to that office. Most offices won't consider you established until you've Yeah, so just to piggyback on that, I think that's a great idea. And I think if you're assigned a primary care doctor, even if you don't think you need to go, maybe right. schedule a visit because it will probably be three to six months before you get on the calendar. And then you have a chance to check out that doctor. You can switch doctors 
um, obviously, if you'd like, but at least you have that avenue. Most offices will consider you a new patient if they haven't seen you in three years. So what, what I recommend uh, is check in with them at least once every three years, even if you don't need a lot. You want to maintain that. And your insurance should cover that. Uh, annual checkup should be yes. included That's in your insurance. Exactly. The annual wellness visit is is on the top 10 uh, The things that the Affordable Care Act protects. And so even if you have a high deductible plan, your annual wellness visit should be covered. And even if you only go once every two to three years, I, I think that's very valuable. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for being our guest. Uh, and thank you to our audience uh, for listening and for asking your questions. So please keep calling and texting in your questions and we will answer them in future episodes. Thanks for listening to Care Talk. <laughs>